So Paul is beginning and in the middle of this argument in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says in verse 3, I brought to you that which was of first importance, that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. And then he goes on in this little section where he talks about, some of you may say that there's no resurrection, and then argues that if the resurrection actually isn't real, then we're futile in our faith. And if there's no resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then we haven't been raised. And if we haven't been raised, then we're still in our sin, and sin has won, and death is the last word. And then you get to our text with that in mind. So let me read. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 through 26. This is God's good, kind word to you and I. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let me pray and ask the Lord to bless his word in our time. Jesus, by your spirit, strengthen your people in the knowledge of the surety of the resurrection that is through Christ. We ask in his name, amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has an effect. And I want you to see that this morning from this text in two ways. I want you to see two things. I want you to see the ripple effect of the resurrection of Jesus. And I want you to see the victory over an enemy in Jesus. The ripple effect that the resurrection of Jesus has and the victory that that resurrection brings. Okay? So first... The ripple effect of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul is preaching to the Corinthians and he's speaking to people who are in this cosmopolitan city where there are all sorts of ideas about life and death and the afterlife. And there are some people who are saying, well, maybe the resurrection isn't true. And Paul is is applying to this thought and saying the resurrection of Jesus has an effect. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead in verse 20, and he's the first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is that biblical term that is often used for people when they die. And Paul now juxtaposes against each other the effects, the ripple effects of two different human beings. The ripple effects of the life of Adam as the representative of mankind who fell into sin. And the effect of the life of Adam... And his rebellion against God is that all of mankind bears the same end, and that is death. Here's the effect of the life of Adam. We all die. 
But Jesus has a different effect. That the resurrection of Christ as the better Adam has the effect that though all die in Adam, he says all, not all without exception people, but all in terms of relation to the condition of human beings under sin. That they are raised in Christ. That the effect of the resurrection of Jesus is that there is life that comes. And the language that he uses that I want to get at this ripple effect is, he says it's the first fruits. That Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, he's the first fruits of a resurrection ripple effect that will happen. So the language of first fruits is Old Testament language, right? If you've been around the Bible at all, you know that in the days of harvest, when people planted the seeds, they hoped that there would be a harvest. And when the rains came and they saw the plants sprout up, and when the first piece of fruit came, it's as if the people who sowed the harvest could breathe a sigh of relief. Because when you saw the first vegetable on the vine, you knew that there was more coming. And the effect of Jesus is that his resurrected life has a train that follows behind it. And I, shamelessly taking this illustration from a friend of mine. And um, he says that Stephen Covey, you know the guy who wrote the habits of the seven habits of highly effective people. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we should take everything that Stephen Covey says as gospel truth. But he was at a conference in Seattle one time, and he had taken his daughter with him. And he promised his daughter that as soon as his conference speaking was over, that he would take her on a ferry ride and then to this beautiful dinner. And when he finished speaking, he was well known at this point. He's walking through the crowd, his daughter's behind him. And he sees this old friend who stops him. They haven't seen each other in 30 years. The guy was with his life. They start this conversation. It's really fun. The guy puts his arm around him and says, like, Stephen, it's so good. Listen, we have to go have dinner together. We haven't seen each other in 40 years. And he said that Stephen looked and he watched his daughter's shoulders drop. And then she heard her dad say, Fred or Will or, you know, Fred, you know, it's so good to see you, but I made a promise to my daughter that we're going to go have dinner, and so we'll do it another time. And he grabbed her hand, and he walked out. And he said to his daughter, what happened in that moment was that it made the promise of her father visible. And the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits that makes the promise of God visible to all of his people that death does not have the last word. It makes the promise of God visible. It also makes your future visible. So I'm going to give you another one. And guys in the men's retreat, thanks for listening to these things again. When I was a platoon leader with the 326 Engineer Battalion, we... Um, we got to do really fun things in training. One of the fun things we got to do is we got to blow up airfields with explosives. And I had a platoon of 40 overgrown boys that were giddy in all of this. I mean, it was just... So there's one day we're in the back 40 of Fort Campbell, and when we blow up an airfield, we do this thing called a daisy chain. 
We dig big holes. We put 300 pounds of explosives in each hole. We have 10 holes. Do the math. So you have C4 stuffed in a hole. You have this fuse. You have a primer fuse so you can light it and run away in time. And then you have this thing called debt cord, which explodes at like 25,000 meters per second. But this is true. You pull the fuse, you run. When that first hole explodes, it blows earth into the air half a mile. But you know that when that first explosion goes off, There is clouds of dirt raining down. When the first one goes, you are sure that what follows behind will be more. And Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus makes your future visible. When he rises, there is an explosion of life that trails behind. That though sin has spoken a loud word, those who are raised in Christ have broken the power of sin and death with it. I want you to see that there is a ripple effect of the resurrection of Jesus. But briefly, there is also a victory. He says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming who belong to Christ, then comes the end, this language of finality. Then there is an end, and he picks up this idea of Jesus as the resurrected life vanquishing an enemy, and he uses the language of the spiritual forces of death, right? That... That when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and authority and power, right? After all the spiritual forces of darkness that sin has brought, those are defeated. Jesus hands this kingdom over to God and he has to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And what he says is, is that the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance for you and I that an enemy has been vanquished, that there is a victory in the resurrection of Christ. It is victory over an enemy. And it's, it is interesting to me that the telos and end, it is hopeful that what Jesus is after, right, is a trail of life. You want to see what the reign of Jesus looks like? The reign of Adam is death, and it's everywhere, and it has your number, and it has mine. But the reign of Jesus is that he has conquered the grave. It produces life. In the end, it produces raised bodies that are put back together with souls. It turns death into life. It turns graveyards into playgrounds. It is the hope of all who trust in him. 
Death is not natural. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this through the years from friends and at deathbeds and at funerals. It is not natural. It is the most unnatural thing that you can see. If you have been at the bedside of someone when they take their last breath, you know that in the moment after, that that is not a natural thing. It's not a friend. When my good friend died after a terrible battle with cancer, we all said it was a severe mercy. We're thankful that the pain didn't last. But what we were not saying was that death was good. We said the end of physical suffering was good. Death is an enemy that Jesus defeats. It's an enemy that God has conquered. We wait for a resurrected body. So let me just do a a little bit of application by way of finishing. First, I recognize that this past year we have seen a lot of death. More than I probably know in the room, but I know of mothers and fathers that we have buried. And we want for the people of God a good end. Actually, we want for all a good end because we want all to come to faith and life in Christ. But some of you are here this morning and my guess is you are like my friend Woody. And you are missing those you love who have been your companions or your spouses for years. My guess is that there are some of you here who have had miscarriages, who have quietly gone about sorrow and sadness except maybe for a friend or two, and what you long for and hope for is that death is not the last word. But Christ has been raised, and he is the first fruits. For some of you this morning, I know that you feel that the sentence of death is actually heavy upon you. Either by virtue of your age, that death feels closer than your driver's license date. Or that you have a diagnosis that seems fairly hopeless. And you need to hear that death is not. Some of you, I think what this does, and this is true of the life of the church for her whole history, that the surety of resurrection life has meant that the church has been emboldened with confidence in her mission. So that when Jesus says, don't fear those who can only kill the body, 
But fear the one who after the body is gone judges both body and soul. The church through her history has taken great confidence in her mission, which is why when you read the stories of the missionaries who went to Africa in the 1800s or 1900s, they packed their belongings in their coffins. You know why? Because they knew they weren't coming home. But they went anyway. And they went with joy. And they went with confidence. Because they had a hope that where the life of Christ spiritually springs up through the gospel going forward, that though they die, they will live. And I hope that there are some of you this morning who are renewed in your sense of the body they may kill. But this life endures and I can go with freedom. I think one of the applications is for cowards like me. I had a mentor who said, Keith, your job as a pastor is to help people die well. As a 27-year-old, I thought, wow, that's, that's a little heavy. But my guess is, is that there are some of you here who read the Bible and know that you're not supposed to be afraid. But you're deathly afraid of that, Alan. For a host of reasons. Maybe you had a parent who died when you were really young. You just didn't really have a chance to process that very well. And it haunts you. And you believe. But you're afraid. Some of you have actually seen some really traumatic things about death. And you don't know how to get out from under it. And I would hope that the Lord and his kindness would speak a word to comfort to you in your fear this morning. I love the way Bunyan ends Pilgrim's Progress. The allegory and the person Christian as he's crossing the river Jordan is full of fear. And the Lord sends a helper who's crossing the river, who speaks to him the encouragement of the things that he has a hard time believing in the dark. Beloved, you can die in fear because it's not the strength of your faith in Jesus that gives you confidence. It is that Christ has been raised and there is a trail of life behind him that's coming. I think it helps us grieve, actually. I think the truth that Christ has been raised and if Christ has been raised, it helps us actually grieve. I think the thing that we are most sad about and the thing that sometimes we cover over with our theology is the sadness that pervades our life on the reality of death. It helps us grieve. If death is not the final word, we can actually be sad. And I'm going to turn, and this is my last one. This may seem a little off the beaten track. 
But I do think actually that the resurrection reality of the body and the effect that Jesus has, that helps you and I to take a different view of our own bodies. It's interesting, culturally, death is the last taboo. You can talk about anything, but we are so engulfed in the way we view our bodies, think about our bodies, treat our bodies. That the truth of the resurrection that Christ brings in raising a body that will be imperishable is that the current bodies that we have, beautiful, made in the image, they are nothing in comparison to what Jesus will do. Here's my last one. What do I want you to do? I want you to go home. And again, I don't care if it's today or sometime this week. I want you to stop and I think about your own death. Michael Mason wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage. I read it before I got married. It freaked me out. <laughs> Not because of what you think. <laughs> Michael Mason said that in, uh, as a regular practice with his wife on Sundays, they will kind of take a nap on the couch, and he said he found himself often thinking about the skull beneath the flesh of the wife he was married to. And I was like, that's weird. But like your great-grandfather and your great-grandmother, you were going to die. And like my father, I'm going to die. And beloved, I want you to go home and I want you to ponder your own death. And then I want you to turn and I want you to see that death is not the last But Christ has been raised, and life is the last word.